We're going to continue our series, Glory Days, uh, looking at the life and the days and the events uh, of Jesus Christ leading up to the resurrection. And so you know by the calendar and where we are in Scripture that we're getting close to conclusion of this series. The, the series will conclude on Easter Sunday morning um, in the following week, April, the, what will that be, the 23rd. Uh, Jeff will begin a pretty long series on the book of Revelation. Uh, so a great opportunity for you to invite people over the next several weeks to be a part of what God is doing uh, here in and through the church, especially with the, the sermon uh, the next couple of weeks. And so we'll get back, we'll, we'll touch on that in a minute and what we can do, because that ties directly to one of the applications in today's message. And we're going to look at the, the idea of a hero, um, and kind of not P-Ro, like Kathy said about the boats, the small boats, but a hero, and, and, what, and how we respond to heroes. And one of my um, iconic heroes um, is, is the star of a, of a movie series. Uh, we know him as 007, James Bond. I'm kind of a, a little bit of a James Bond aficionado. I've seen uh, probably all of the movies in that collection of movies at least one time. Uh, several of them I've seen more than once, and I've, I've noticed a little pattern in those movies, and movies like it, uh, Mission Impossible series would be one just like it. Some others that, that focus on an individual or a group of people who are trying to save the world from some great evil. And I've noticed, and you've probably noticed this too, that what happens in these movies is when, just when things get the darkest and just when the situation looks, as in, in the case of Mission Impossible, looks impossible, or we're sitting there thinking, there is no way he's going to get out of this. There is no way she's going to win this. There is no way they are going to get out of this situation that they're in. The most incredible thing happens. The, the light bulb comes on and they figure out a way out. They can, they can negotiate their way out of a situation. They can fight their way. Sometimes in some of these movies, especially in James Bond, he has to shoot his way or blow up his way out of a situation, usually leaving a bunch of carnage in its wake, but he still is able to, 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 to vanquish the villain. And that, that pattern just repeats itself over and over again. And those kinds of stories about heroes, whether they're fictional stories that you read um, in a book, you see them in a, maybe a, a superhero in a comic, you watch it in a movie, you see it in one of your favorite uh, TV shows, or, or maybe in real life, or maybe you're watching the news one night and there's a human interest piece about somebody locally or somebody in our country or around the world who's doing something to affect the lives of a number of people and to change the small part of the world that they live in. Or maybe it's something even greater than that, where they're, they're creating some real, real change in our world. And we, we celebrate those heroes and we, we're inspired by them. And we say, okay, if he can do that there, if she can do that there, I can try to do something in my hometown or my neighborhood or my school or my church or whatever. We're inspired by that. And I think we're inspired by that for a couple of different reasons. One, I think we, we in, in all the bad that might happen in our world, we want to see the good lifted up and celebrated. We want to be encouraged by that. But I think the other thing is just, just kind of in our flesh, we, we like to win. You know, nobody wants their team to lose. Nobody wants to be on the losing end of something, whether it's playing cards around the table as a family or your favorite for this weekend, the Dozers are going crazy because North Carolina Tar Heels are in the national championship tomorrow. So they're excited because their team is winning. And we want to do that. We're a winning culture. We want to see our heroes win. We want to see them accomplish good in the world. We want to see this, maybe it's a, you know, our favorite character in a movie. We want to see him you know, do the right thing the right way and accomplish victory. Well, the problem is every once in a while, heroes don't win. 
And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is how are we going to respond when our heroes lose? How are we going to respond when our heroes fall? How are we going to respond when, when they hit rock bottom? Maybe they don't get back up. You're just thinking about the movie example. How entertaining would it be if an entire series of movies was based on the hero losing repeatedly? I mean, think about James Bond. Let's say he, he were to die in one of those movies and not beat the villain and the villain win. Well, the series would be no more. So for that, that title and that line to continue for, for better or worse, continue making money, he's got to stay alive. So you kind of know that as long as there's rumors about another James Bond, that if you go see a new one coming out, there's, he's going to live and he's going to win and that's going to happen. But what, how do we respond to a movie maybe where the villain wins or, or a story on our favorite show? Or maybe we, we watch this news story and we think, well, why did that happen to that person? It seems like they're getting the glory and they're getting the victory, but they're the villain. They're the one doing the wrong in the story and the person in the right, they're, they're the one that's losing. And I think that creates a little bit of, of tension for us uh, because as we think about that and what we want and how things play out, they differ every once in a while. And as we've looked at this story over the last six weeks and we're in last five weeks, we're in week six this week with two more to go in this, this series looking at the last days in the life of, of Jesus Christ, we see a story today. We're going to see a story where at least if we place ourselves in that time, in that day, and picture ourselves as one of Christ's followers who would have walked with Jesus, who would have been present maybe for his miracles or would have been present for some of his teaching, maybe would have had a chance to have a conversation with him. And they're watching this happen to their hero. They're watching what we're about to read happen. You have to kind of think like them for a minute because we have the, obviously the, the blessing of knowing what happens. We have the rest of the story. We know the ending. But, but in this instance, just looking at this sliver of Jesus' story in his life, it's going to look very bleak, like the hero's going to lose. Bridging the gap between last week's message that Jeff shared and today's, we're going to look at John chapter 19. There, there are three things that happened uh, that we kind of, we, we didn't miss them, we just haven't addressed them specifically in the passages that have been a part of this series. And in John chapter 18, there are two trials that, that John, the writer of John, details as happening. One is a religious trial in front of Jewish religious leaders, and the other one is a civil trial in front of Pilate. And so what the Jewish religious leaders are doing is saying, you know, Jesus has come and declared that he's the son of God, which to them was blasphemy. To them, that was like, that was like the worst thing that a human being to, could do, to declare to basically be God. Based on their understanding of what it was, they were still waiting on a Messiah to come. And so they've, they've put Jesus on trial. They find him, even though he goes before the high priest, he demonstrates absolutely perfect poise. He handles the situation exactly the way that we would expect Jesus to. He provides the kind of logic that they could not respond, they could not answer with an objection to what he was doing, even though he does exactly what he needed to do to show that there was no way he could be accused for what he was doing, he could be accused of this religious crime. He's still found guilty. So then the, the body, the religious leaders that find him guilty, then they do, they pass him off to the civil body. Because what's happening is, is the religious body, they understand that Jesus is guilty, but they don't want to be the one with the blood on their hands. They don't want to be the one to kill Jesus. They want to let the civil body do that, the governing body, the Roman authorities. And we get, we get to a little bit of insight into the fulfillment of prophecy in this section because what had happened was is if the Jews would have decided 
if the religious leaders would have decided that because Jesus was guilty, they were going to be the ones to kill him, their option, their, their method of, of death penalty at the time was by stoning. But the Roman death penalty was crucifixion. And so you go back through, through the Old Testament and even some of Jesus' teaching in the New Testament, and you see these different prophecies where Jesus says first that he'd be delivered over to the Gentiles to be killed, and then that he would be lifted up, and that, that concept that he would be placed up on a cross and lifted up in front of everyone and, and die that way. So in order for those prophecies to be fulfilled, it couldn't be the Jewish way. It had to be the Roman way. And so it's just a little bit ironic that in their, in their haste to pass the buck on to the civil body, the Jews, and they're going to do this several other times throughout the story, actually help fulfill prophecy, help fulfill things that were written and told about who Jesus was and what would happen to him. And so they're helping fulfill, ultimately, the fact that Jesus would become the, what he said, the way, the truth, and the life. And then the second thing that happens as he's talking about, he begins to talk about in chapter 18, Starting in verses 33, he talks about the kingdom that he's there to establish and establishing his kingship over this eternal heavenly kingdom that one day will, will take over the earth and this new heaven and this new earth and he's going to be at the right hand of the Father and ruling over this kingdom. And he talks about it's not a kingdom in an earthly sense. And so he's not proclaiming to be a king in an earthly sense. So they wouldn't know what type of king he's claiming to be. And this kingdom grows, as he says, as people come to know the truth. And so he's sitting here, the embodiment, the, the living flesh and blood truth in front of them saying the way to get into this kingdom, the way to be a part of this kingdom is not to be born a Roman citizen or to be raised in the bloodline of the Jews, but to trust me, to know me as your savior. And he's telling this to the people who are eventually going to, as we're going to see, hand him over to be crucified. And at the very end of chapter 18, there's a verse where it talks about the crowd choosing uh, to release a prisoner instead of Jesus. It was uh, Passover custom to release a prisoner uh, just before the feast. And so they're in preparation for the feast. And so they have this option. They have this choice to release someone. And so they choose a robber named Barabbas uh, instead of Jesus to be released. And so he's, he's set free. He's free to go. And it's just, again, another small bit of irony in this whole story that, that the crowds would choose this bandit to be released over their creator, the one who created them and put life inside of them. Paul writes in Colossians 1 that Christ holds all creation together. We know that Christ was present with God in creation before taking on the, the form of a human and coming and living as a child and then growing as a man and ultimately coming to do the things that he did. And so he was present in creation. So you have this, this creator being selected uh, for death over this person, this robber. And, you know, when you think about what do robbers do, you know, they, they take life from people. They take things that are a part of your life and they try to make them theirs. And so here you have this one that takes from people instead of this person who's been giving to people and giving life to people. So that brings us to this morning, John chapter 19. Verses uh, 1 through 16 will be the focus of our, our discussion this morning and this look at what happens when Pilate um, is interacting with Jesus some on an individual basis, putting Jesus before a crowd, and then interacting with the crowd some. And so we're just going to read through this, draw out a few things that I think are important for us to either understand or see what they mean, and then I hope that, that from this passage you will begin to see what I've seen over the last uh, several weeks looking at this passage, that there's something uh, very loud and clear in this passage about what, 
what God does for us and what he's doing in this story. And then I think one challenge for you and I to take home with us as we go from this place today. So reading in in John chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Verse 12 says, From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man... You are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Next week, Jeff will pick up at that point um, on the seventh of eight weeks, and then we'll see the conclusion of the story uh, two weeks from now on Easter Sunday. But I want to take you just kind of through several of these verses and point out some things that are important to understand. And the the first one is just those first few words in verse 1. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Uh, Just a, a quick verse at the start of the story after he's been found guilty by the Jewish religious leader's body, and then he's brought before Pilate, and and they choose Barabbas to give him up. And so now Jesus is the one that's going to take on the punishment ahead of this Passover feast. And when it's your translation may say beaten, flogged, as in several of the different ones. And what that means is that that flogging was a particular form of punishment reserved specifically for murderers and for traitors. So again, you've got this, you've got this man who claims to be the son of God. And so he's offended the Jewish religious leaders for that. But then he also is, is now being called king. And so you have this, this civil body, this, this individual who wants to please the civil leadership, the political leadership of the deal. So you have Jesus being looked at as some sort of a traitor. So what they do is they take this whip and on the end of these leather straps, on the end of this whip are pieces of bone and pieces of metal and things that would not just, not just beat the skin, but, but pull back and expose different parts of the skin and the muscle. And so he's beat with that. The soldiers twisted together the crown of thorns and put his on his head. So before any of this is happening, before Jesus is called out and put on display and before Pilate says, behold, the man, he's got blood running down his face. He's got blood all over his back. He's got blood all over his body. And so he's beginning to receive the beating. You know, we talked about what it's like in in a movie or in a story when it becomes very obvious that the hero 
is not going to, to win. Or maybe the hero won, but is not going to live. And place yourself in that day as maybe you're a, you're a Christ follower in that day, in that time, and you're watching all this happen, and you see where this is going. And then for the first time, as Pilate says in, in, in verse 5, the end of verse 5, behold the man. And you see your hero looking different than you've ever seen him before. Blood pouring down his face, blood on his body, beaten, broken. And you're, you're sitting there thinking, he's not going to win. This is not good. And the whole scene, all those verses, the first five verses are meant to, to make a mockery of Jesus, to ridicule him, to embarrass him in front of some of his closest followers. And so you can imagine these religious leaders who've been offended by him in some way, they've been unsure of who he was, and even Pilate, not really sure, because we see he, in, in, in later verses, we're going to see he wrestles with exactly what to do with Jesus but they're sitting there embarrassing him and mocking him and making, uh, making a, an embarrassment. And even, even the phrase, behold the man, even just him saying that wasn't like here's this grand warrior, this mighty person, this ideal hero. Here's this weakling that's covered in blood and his body's been beaten and broken. Here he is, y'all. It was very sarcastic uh, what Pilate was doing. And then you get this interaction between Jesus and Pilate and in verse 9, Jesus uh, is asked, where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, tells us that this is going to happen, this interaction where Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, is going to be asked who sent him. And he's not going to respond. He's going to respond in silence. And so we see, even in bits and pieces of this story, prophecy being fulfilled. Then we get this interaction as Jesus answers him, you would have no authority over me, verse 11 unless it had been given to you from above. He who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. And the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. And could you imagine right now being, being, being in a situation, being there where you've got this political king, this, this leader, Caesar, and then you have this local leader, Pilate. Well, what's he trying to do? He's doing what, exactly what we see happen today. You want to work your way up the political ladder. And it doesn't matter what you do along the way. You want to get as high up the ladder as you can. And Pilate's doing that. And they're appealing. The Jewish religious leaders are appealing to his desire to please man and appealing to his desire to achieve this political status. And they're saying, you know what? If, if, if you recognize him as king, what does that say to your king, Caesar? But what, what they don't understand, later on in the verse, uh, later on in the passage in verse 15, they say, we have no king as Pilate calls him. Behold, your, your king. He presents Jesus again and said, here he is. He's your king. And they respond, no, we have no king but Caesar. So not only do they, do they reject Jesus as their Messiah, but in that instance, they also blaspheme their God. See, Yahweh, God, had been the Jewish king, had had kingship over the Jews from the moment he established his covenant with them. And yet here they are, they're saying, you know what? He's not our king. Caesar's our king from an earthly perspective. And so even in this moment, not only are they, they ridiculing and shunning and shaming Jesus in this, but they're rejecting uh, the, the lordship that their, that their eternal king, their creator, their father God has over them. And then in verse 16, we see the conclusion of this section of the story. Jesus is handed over to be crucified. And this is that, this is that moment in the the movie. This is that moment in the show. This is that moment in the story 
when it, it's beginning to look like all hope is lost. Uh, and, and just a spoiler alert, it's going to get worse next week. Uh, next Sunday's going to be even more difficult to picture yourself being in that situation, witnessing what's going to happen to Christ on the cross, not thinking and not knowing and trying to train yourself to think that, that you don't know what's going to happen, even though we have access to that in Scripture in our lives, putting yourself in those shoes and, and the people and the individuals in that day, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And so, so what does that say about our God in this moment when it looks like the hero is, is going to lose and he's going to, to lose his life and die in the most horrific way? What does it say about us and, and how do we to respond in reaction to the way that the, the, the key players in each of these stories and these accounts acted? I think there's something that we need to understand about what Pilate was doing and about what the Jews do did so that we can apply that to our lives. And so the first thing we want to address before we look at those two, two roles in the story is just that what is it that we learn about God in this story? You see on the screen that one thing you need to know about God is that God is preparing to reveal his greatest glory. I told uh, the first service, and I wish I had done this with, with Nathan when I sent this to him during the week, but in my notes, I have that word greatest in all caps, bold font. Because uh, it's not just one great glory of the many great glories that, that God did in this world. Creation is a great glory. The way that he delivered the Israelites brought great glory to him. The way that he moved in the hearts and lives of so many. But his greatest glory came in the person of Jesus Christ. And his greatest glory is being prepared for in this story. And so I don't want to spoil uh, what's going to happen as we, as we prepare ourselves for the, the conclusion of the Glory Day series. But you can get in your mind, knowing where this story goes and knowing where we are in the, in the Christian calendar, traveling towards Easter, you know where this is going. But I want you to focus on the person of, of Jesus Christ, that, that he, in this moment, was God's preparation for his greatest glory. That, that when things looked darkest, God's going to show himself the most mighty, most powerful, most loving, most merciful, most just being there has ever been, there ever is in this story, and there ever will be. And then because of that, we need to know something about ourselves. See, Pilate, he tried logic, he tried reason, tried a little sarcasm, tried deflection, tried a number of, of different things to show that Jesus was innocent. But the mob still chose to, to crucify Jesus. And then the Jews, they were so blind to the truth. They had Jesus living, serving, breathing, acting right in front of them, teaching some of them, talking with them in the temple about Old Testament writings and prophecy. And they had him, the truth, in the flesh. And they were so blind to it that their actions ultimately led to fulfillment of prophecy that would then cement Jesus' teaching that he was the way the truth and the life, what he said in John chapter 14. And so what we need to know about ourselves is that we don't need to give up God's glory for man's glory. See, what happened when Pilate was doing all of that, he tried all that he could, uh, but even in the end, he gave in to the crowd and did what they wanted to do, even though he knew that Jesus was probably innocent. And you see that throughout the story. Part of the story I lost my place in the first service and had to find this, but part of the story in verses 7 and 8, he gets so concerned about who Jesus is that it, it's recorded that he was more afraid. 
Not that he became afraid, he was already afraid and he became more afraid because in verse seven it says, we, the, the Jewish people, the religious leaders saying, we have a law and according to that law he ought, ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And I think there's something in the back of Pilate's mind that thinks, you know what? Jesus is probably who he says he is. And you're about to make a really big mistake. And now I'm going to be a part of that because I'm going to help make that mistake. And then you get the response to that. Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. He goes to Jesus and ask him where he's from. He's concerned. He's trying to figure out what's happening here. And then it says in verse 12, after this interaction, he sought to release him. But we see in verse 16, he gives in to the crowd. He gives in to man's desire to, to, to live outside of and make a choice that, that would bring harm to someone, to an individual. Yes, it's part of God's plan and part of his will, but even then, his reasoning and his way of doing it was giving in to man's glory. And then the Jews, the religious leaders of the time, as I said before, they were blind to the truth. Their actions led to fulfillment of prophecy. They did that several times throughout the interaction of this story and this interplay. And so I think that in this, this part of the message where you think about, now how am I like either one of those groups of people? Am I like Pilate in some point in my life or, where I've heard the truth and I, I've seen it in front of me the way that, they, that way that he had heard from Jesus that day and seen him, but maybe said, you know what, I think, I think man's, man's glory is the route I want to go. I, th I think doing what pleases man is probably the safest thing for me to do. I think doing what man wants me to do is maybe the most popular thing for me to do. I mean, imagine if Pilate goes against the crowd. Well, who's going to get crucified? Who's going to get killed? Jesus is probably still going to die. The Jews are going to find a way, and they're probably going to kill Pilate too. They're probably going to get so enraged that they're probably going to want to kill him. And so he's thinking, what do I do to preserve myself? What do I do to do what's best for me, no matter what? So you have an opportunity, just like these individuals did in this story, to choose one of two paths. I think in response to what Jesus Christ did for us and what he went through in this moment as he's before these people bleeding and broken and, and, and on his way to the crucifixion is we have an opportunity to do one of two things. And we can choose to join in God's greatest glory, a glory that happened in and through the life and the person of Jesus Christ, or we can, we can choose to trust Jesus as our Savior and, and, and then go from there and live the kind of life that God desires for us. We can, we can choose to, to connect with God in worship, we can choose to grow to be more like Christ. We can choose, uh, I think most importantly, to reach others. You know, that's the, the, the discipleship process. That's a part of the vision for our church to be, become a place where ordinary people are transformed into world-changing disciple makers. And that third part of that discipleship process, that we would reach others. We do that when you and I become a reflection of Jesus Christ to the world around us when we become the hands and feet of Jesus. We, we cannot give up our lives for someone else's sin. We cannot give up our lives to save another person. Uh, Christ did that on the cross. We'll look at that the next two weeks and what that means. Um, if you've got friends or family who don't know Christ as their Savior, the next two Sundays are probably two of the most pivotal Sundays of any in the year uh, that you could invite them to come and be a part of what's happening in our church and what's going to be shared through song and through the Word. And so I hope that you're planning on doing that over the next couple of weeks so that you can be a small part of a reflection of who Jesus Christ is to the world around you. 
Or we can choose like Pilate did or the Jews did, and we can give in to the power of the world. There's this, there's this tendency in our lives to when things get out of control around us, especially as Christians, uh, to huddle up and, and insulate ourselves from what's going on in the world around us and not want to be a part of the sin and the brokenness in the world. But in reality, it's, it's now more important than ever that we would take that, that third part of our discipleship process, that reaching others, and that we would take it to the extreme. And that we would be constantly looking for ways to, to reflect the greatest glory of Jesus Christ to the world around us. See, we have a, a front row seat the next two weeks uh, to what I believe are two of the darkest days in the history of the world, if not the darkest. Uh, just from a, a strictly earthly perspective, they're two of the darkest days in all of history. Definitely from a spiritual perspective, from a Christian worldview, they are the two darkest days in history. Uh, but, but April 16th is, is coming. It is the greatest day in the history of the world when we celebrate and we recognize Easter Sunday and we get to see what happens when God's glory is made known to the world. God's greatest glory is revealed to a group of individuals and it's still the greatest glory in the, in the entire world. And we get a front row seat to that. But then we get the choice each day as your, your prayer emphasis in the worship guide says that we can pray to choose each day to be a reflection of this great glory in the world around us and to live the kind of lives that, that God has called us to live and to choose to not seek man's glory and not live as though the hero lost, but to, but to know and trust that, that God wants to do in and through us what he did in the life of Jesus Christ and that spiritually raising us out of death out of our sin to life, and then sharing that story uh, with those around us.